afternoon. Our next case is State versus Jordan, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Michael Henry. I'm a special deputy attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice. In an unusual turn of events, at least for me, I did not write the state's briefing for the Court of Appeals of this court, but I did add my signature to the state's brief in this court and will be arguing on behalf of the state today. I'd like to save five minutes for rebuttal, should it be necessary. Uh, key facts of this case, largely uncontested, uh, but worth touching on briefly. Uh, November 2017, Charlotte Mecklenburg police officers received a report of a stolen car, act on information arising from the report. Two officers uh, arrived at a split residence slash business on Eastway Drive in Charlotte, North Carolina around midnight in an unmarked car. They parked in the lot and observed the stolen car was indeed there. Uh, they then saw a Mr. Marcel Thompson exit the residence, approach the car, appear if he's about to enter, and see the officers, make co eye contact for a few moments, and then hurriedly back, uh, walk back into the home. Officer Williams exited the car, attempted to make contact with Mr. Thompson, uh, but was ignored while Mr. Thompson knocked on the door, calling to those inside that it was the police. Thompson was let inside, but left the door open behind him. Officer Williams followed up the stairs into a small stoop, standing in the rain, initiated a conversation through the open doorway with those inside. There were four folks inside. There's the defendant, Mr. Jordan, uh, who's the only uh, party to uh, the present appeal. Mr. Thompson, the officers, uh, who the officers saw approach the car. The homeowner occupant, Mr. Dietz, and uh, Ms. Tara Robinson, who appears to be the individual that uh, initially took the car. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, after a brief conversation regarding the stolen car and receiving IDs from those inside, Officer Williams asked them to come outside and talk. When they declined, Officer Williams steps inside, speaking to another officer waiting outside the doorway, calls back and said they got to lock it down. This referred to the presence of visible drug paraphernalia, which included a table directly to the left of the doorway in the main room with a razor blade and some other paraphernalia on it. Numerous officers eventually arrive. Mr. Dietz eventually consents uh, to a search of the home, but there's uncertainty regarding a small black safe that's sort of at the core of this appeal uh, in the main room that nobody uh, uh, will claim ownership to. Officers do eventually secure a warrant. They find hypodermic needles, digital scales, guns, plastic baggies in the safe. They find a firearm, bags of cocaine, uh, $585, the defendant's person, they find 98 bucks in his wallet and uh, a little over $2,000 in his jacket. He is indicted for cocaine trafficking and other charges. Files a motion to suppress the ruling on which underlies this appeal. Uh, at the hearing, only the state presents evidence. Relevant here, this didn't include the testimony of Officer Williams, who uh, the record only reflects was unavailable, uh, but does include uh, other key evidence, particularly from a number of the officers that were at the scene. Um, just very broadly, these include Officers Carson and Tran Thompson, who testified that paraphernalia was visible from the open doorway, testimony of Brito, that uh, Officer Brito, that defendant denied living in the home or having anything to do with there, and that he witnessed the defendant close the safe and lock it and pocket the key, testimony of Officer Carson, the defendant denied the safe was his, and two um, portions of body camera footage from Officers Carson and Brito showing the interior of the home and sort of generally supporting the officers testimony. The trial court denied the motion to suppress through an oral order with findings of fact and conclusion of the law. States intend to enter written order, but it ultimately did not. The evidence was, of course, admitted against the defendant, and he was convicted on all counts. 
In the Court of Appeals, a uh, defendant contested the denial of his motion to suppress, and that court held, quote, that the trial court erred by denying defendant's motion to suppress. That is, that the motion to suppress should have affirmatively been granted. In the course of so holding, the Court of Appeals made two conclusions that uh, uh, I'm going to be discussing today. One is that the evidence did not support a finding that defendant, quote, lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and two, that the officer's warrantless entry was unlawful as it fared to satisfy various exceptions. These conclusions are both erroneous for reasons we'll discuss, but broadly and at the outset, as to the defendant's reasonable expectation of privacy, which is sometimes colloquially referred to as standing in this context, the Court of Appeals erroneously placed the burden on the state to show that the defendant lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy rather than placing the burden on defendant to affirmatively show that he had such an expectation as the trial court did. As to the law lawfulness of the warrantless entry, the Court of Appeals overlooked competent evidence in the record indicating the officer saw drug paraphernalia in plain view from the open doorway, thus giving rise to action circumstances that could have justified an immediate entry. This relatedly leaves two possible resolutions for this court in disposing of this appeal. First and most simply is to hold that defendant failed to establish a reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, and this would result in reversal of the trial court and affirmance, or sorry, reversal of the court of appeals and affirmance of the trial court. Second and alternatively, to hold the trial court failed to make sufficient findings of fact, this is more in line with defendant's argument from the Court of Appeals, fail to make sufficient findings of fact to permit meaningful appellate review as to the plain view exigency issue. This would result in the modification of the Court of Appeals opinion with a remand to the trial court for the entry of new findings. So that gets us to today. Turning to the first proposed resolution, which uh, the state thinks is, is, is the um, best, simplest, and cleanest, which relates to standing. Or, more appropriately known as a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, this court's well settled. The Fourth Amendment is a personal right. Parties may not vicariously insert, assert the Fourth Amendment rights of others to suppress evidence against themselves. To this end, defendant's motion to suppress pla placed the burden on defendant to affirmably establish both that he, A, had a personal, had personally had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the home and or the safe, and B, that this expectation is one that society recognizes. Correctly noted by the Court of Appeals, and I've alluded to here, this is often colloquially referred to as standing, but in reality is simply Fourth Amendment analysis for establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy. The defendant here unquestionably and plainly failed to meet this standard. The COA's holding that the evidence failed to support a finding that defendant lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy gets it exactly backward. Insofar as it presumes that defendant had Fourth Amendment standing as the default, and then places the burden on the state to rebut this. This review has been expressly, this view has been expressly rejected by the United States Supreme Court in Rackus, this court in Barnes, among other cases. Simply, the evidence here is undisputed that as to the home, defendant repeatedly informed the officers that he didn't live there and that if they wanted consent to the search, they had to get it from Mr. Dietz. As to the safe, he likewise repeatedly informed the officers that it wasn't his, nor were its contents. Defendant presented no evidence at the motion to suppress hearing that contradicted or qualified these statements in any way, and he argued extensively during closing argument at trial that the safe itself wasn't his and that he didn't live in the home. As far as I'm aware, the admission on page 17 of defendant's new brief that he was indeed keeping the safe in Mr. Dietz's home is the first time in this litigation that defendant has ever suggested he actually owned the safe. Was it in front of the trial court that the defendant was the uncle, or excuse me, the nephew of the, uh, I guess, Mr. Dietz? That was an interesting 
fact that there is no testimony to that effect so so that information comes from the defendant cites two sources for that their body camera footage i didn't catch them on first viewing of the of the body camera footage there's one in particular where the an officer on a piece of body camera footage is passing by the defendant and asks him a question about the house and the defendant goes it's my uncle's place and he kind of points in this direction and that's it i couldn't find the other one the defendant cited another one and i'm i'm sure it's right but i i couldn't i couldn't hear it i tried to get it from the audio, but I couldn't, couldn't get it. So there simply is no evidence from which the, uh, to conclude that defendant has affirmatively carried a burden of showing a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, in arguing to the contrary here, and as he did at the motion to suppress hearing, defendant points to evidence he urges could potentially be consistent with the existence of a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, defendant was allegedly a family member of Mr. Dietz. Um, there was apparent, it, it, defendant says he was welcome late at night. I, I, I gather, there's no evidence of that. I gather that it's just from the fact that he was there late at night. Um, he was the one who let the police in the front door, right? That's actually not clear either. Uh, th there is one officer who wrote that in his report from the night, but uh, when he testified, he didn't recall that one way or the other. So there was some evidence that he opened the door when Thompson was banging on it saying, police. So you would agree with me that there was evidence in the record to suggest that um, that Mr. Jordan had the power to invite in or exclude. Just it, there was evidence in the record whether or not it was contested. And I, I would say point. I would say there's evidence in the record he opened the door. Yeah. Um, uh, and that and this refers so in going through the evidence in the record to support or that it would be consistent with a reasonable expectation of privacy. And, and this goes to the page 17 reference about the safe, that he was apparently trusted to bring in sensitive material. Um, but defendant presented no evidence supporting these facts, and the trial court made no such findings. They are sort of about being welcome and having authority over ingress and egress. These are sort of speculative, the, the closeness of a family relationship. The trial court, in fact, found from the competent evidence in the record that defendant never indicated he had any expectation of privacy or interest in the property. That is supported in the record. Uh, and therefore, the trial court's ruling denying the motion to suppress should be affirmed because the defendant failed to establish a reasonable expectation of privacy. And without that, there is no search for Fourth Amendment purposes. And the analysis ends there. I do think it's important on this analysis. There was one uh, sticky wicket that the, the Court of Appeals talked about on this issue that I think is uh, I, I want to specifically address. It's sort of a sub-issue here, which is this voluntary abandonment issue. Um, and that is that the Court of Appeals, I think the most significant evidence in the record about a lack of a reasonable expectation of privacy is defendant's insistence, and you can just, he does it over and over again on the body camera footage and the officers testify to it, that he doesn't live here, this isn't my house, I don't have to ask Mr. Dietz if you want consent to search, it's not my safe, it's not my stuff. He says that over and over again. The Court of Appeals sort of just wholly wipes aside all that evidence by using what's called, uh, sort of the, known as the voluntary abandonment doctrine. Um, this is in paid, uh, paragraph 24 of the Court of Appeals opinion, and this is, I think, its strongest argument to reject the, the reasonable expectation of privacy position that the state is taking here, so I want to make sure I address it now. Um, in short, the voluntary abandonment doctrine generally well established, a person who voluntarily abandons property 
loses any reasonable expectation of privacy and is therefore precluded from seeking to suppress evidence seized from that property. This kind of goes with the classic, you throw out a bag of trash kind of thing or donate property to a goodwill or something like that. Uh, and this does not apply, and this is where the, the, the COA hung its hat on, Th this does not apply when the person who voluntarily abandons the property only did so as a result of police misconduct. So in the Court of Appeals view, because the warrantless entry into the residence was reportedly illegal, the fact that defendant, quote, did not deny his connection with the residence and disclaim ownership of the safe until after, end quote, the officers entered, essentially renders defendants disclaiming ownership meaningless under this purpose of the voluntary abandonment doctrine for purposes of assessing whether he had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, this is incorrect primarily because I think there was competent evidence in the record demonstrating that the entry wasn't illegal, so the whole analysis fails, and we'll turn to that next. But at this point, even assuming that the warrantless entry was illegal, this, the Court of Appeals still gets this issue backwards, and it doesn't make any practical sense. And the, the, the holding as currently expressed in the Court of Appeals opinion is significant and dangerous with respect to Fourth Amendment case law. The Fourth Amendment analysis always is and has remained the same. The burden is on the defendant to establish a reasonable expectation of privacy. As I mentioned earlier, the United States Supreme Court in Carter, absent that showing, that initial showing, there simply is no search to consider for Fourth Amendment purposes. So any voluntary abandonment uh, uh, issue becomes irrelevant. So to put that in context of this case, defendant filed a motion to suppress and was fully capable of providing evidence, if any existed, to support a finding of a reasonable expectation of, uh, of privacy in the property. Overnight guests, for example, have a reasonable expectation of property. Defendant may or may not have been an overnight guest. A mere legitimate presence or simply using the apartment for business purposes does not uh, convey a reasonable expectation of privacy. There's certainly evidence that this property was being used for business purposes by defendant uh, and, and Mr. Dietz for uh, narcotics trafficking. All sorts of factors can matter as to whether or not a reasonable expectation of property uh, privacy exists, length of time someone's there, prior connections, permission to use the home, the absence of the owner, and so on and so on. None of that was offered. Defendant offered no such testimony or evidence, nor did defendant's motion to suppress contain any such allegations. Instead, the only evidence in the record uh, was defendant's insistence that he had nothing whatsoever to do with the property, nothing whatsoever to do with the safe, that he happened to be there when the officers arrived, that he may have answered the door for Thompson, and that he locked the safe. In other words, this case is not about whether the state is attempting to defeat a prima facie allegation of a reasonable expectation of property through the voluntary abandonment doctrine, in which case the defendant replies to that effort by asserting that there was illegal police conduct. This case is about whether the defendant satisfied his burden of establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy at all. We can't burden switch the way that the, the Court of Appeals does here. The defendant must show a reasonable expectation of privacy before considering whether police misconduct somehow moots a voluntary abandonment. For example, to draw a hypothetical, the Court of Appeals approach would effectively upend Fourth Amendment law by removing the burden of establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy. A pizza delivery man, being the quintessential person with a legitimate presence who doesn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, abandons contraband at a residence during an illegal police raid would be entitled to suppression of the contraband merely because the search violated the Fourth Amendment rights of the owner. If he could simply say, the search was illegal, therefore I don't want to hear anything about my voluntarily abandoning this contraband. I get to have a reasonable expectation of privacy regardless. It's not how Fourth Amendment analysis works, and that's not where the voluntary abandonment doctrine fits into that analysis. 
and that's something that the court expressly rejected, that the United States Supreme Court rejected in Rockus, and this court uh, did in Barnes. Okay, so I think that's the cleanest resolution and the most accurate resolution to this case, that the defendant had the burden of establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy, the trial court held the defendant to that burden, the Court of Appeals relieved defendant of that burden and effectively presumed that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy, and then in fact went so far as to hold that the motion to suppress should have been granted, uh, which effectively becomes a, a fact-finding mission by the Court of Appeals. But if we don't like that analysis or we want to move on to the real sort of substantive meat of the case, we can move on to plain view and exigency as a, as a, as a separate resolution in this case. This would, as I noted, result in a different result in a different result, which would be to say that this is a situation on plain view and exigency where there was competent evidence in the record to this effect, but the trial court made no or made very few substantial findings related to these documents. So we would then run into the problem of having not insufficient findings of fact to give rise to meaningful appellate review, uh, uh, creating uh, a need for remand. Just to summarize quickly where that evidence is, um, there is, of course, nothing illegal about officers standing outside in a porch and looking through an open doorway. Contraband seen in this fashion can give rise to lawful plain view search, Bieber and Barnes. We have plenty of cases to that effect. Here, there was evidence which the trial court could have found the officers saw drugs in plain view from the doorway before they ever entered. Officer Carlson, Carson rather, testified that he saw a razor blade, a white powdery substance, residue on the countertop, and some baggies on the table to the left of the door, and that is why he entered the residence. Officer Tran Thompson testified that he could see defendant right beside the baggies and razor blade with the residue when he got, quote, got to the doorway that this paraphernalia was visible from the doorway and that this case changed from a stolen car investigation to a narcotics investigation at that time. Moreover, Officer White testified that the officers were notably aware, based on the stolen vehicle report that we opened this discussion with, that this is potentially the home of a heroin dealer and they would have been presumably looking for such evidence. And finally, the visibility of this evidence is plain from the body cam videos themselves, two of which were admitted in the hearing uh, on defendant's motion to suppress. Now, from the context of the hearing and the trial court's order, it appears that largely everybody below was focused on the stolen car, hot pursuit, whether the officers were invited in, and a reasonable expectation of privacy, which again goes to why I think the reasonable expectation of privacy resolution in this case is the cleaner and, and, and uh, more appropriate one. But still, additional findings of fact as to plain view, uh, there's certainly competent evidence that could provide basis to assess whether there's probable cause to search as well as an exigency justifying warrantless entry based on the possible destruction of narcotics evidence. The this Court of Appeals in paragraph seven and paragraph 32 do acknowledge this possibility, um, but they reject it because the state didn't present the testimony of Officer Williams, of course, who was the one who initially entered. I'm not sure we need that specific level of uh, uh, testimony. We notably have no problem, for example, inferring that Mr. Thompson's hasty return to the residence was based upon him seeing officers Williams and White despite Thompson himself not testifying to that effect. Lay opinion testimony as to obvious plain sight and resulting behaviors of others counts for something. Um, here, Williams was unavailable to testify. Other officers testified paraphernalia was in plain view from the doorway, and this paraphernalia was ultimately the reason that Williams called to lock this place down. But in any event, the trial court simply made no findings on the matter, despite the existence of competent evidence in the record to this effect. So, in conclusion, 
The question of what this court should do now depends on whether the court chooses one of the two resolutions we discussed, and if so, which one? In my opinion, the most legally appropriate solution is the first, that is, hold the defendant failed to present any evidence suggesting, let alone evidence establishing, as the Court of Appeals held, a reasonable expectation of privacy. The trial court found as much. This finding is supported by competent evidence, and the, court, the opinion of the Court of Appeals should therefore be reversed, and the trial court affirmed. Alternatively, this court could hold that the trial court failed to resolve material conflicts in the evidence as to whether plain view of narcotics from the open doorway gave rise to exigent circumstances that would justify a warrantless search. If this court chooses that approach, then the Court of Appeals should be reversed and the matter remanded to the trial court for the entry of new findings so as to permit meaningful appellate review. Either way, the state respectfully requests this court reverse the opinion of the Court of Appeals. And on that, I reserve my remaining time. For Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, Christopher Brooke for Richard Jordan. The state concedes in their briefing that law enforcement's warrantless search and entry of the home in question was unconstitutional. The only question based on that briefing that remains for this court is whether Mr. Jordan has standing to pursue this constitutional argument. Here, based on facts captured by law enforcement's body-worn cameras, Jordan has standing to challenge the search of his uncle's home that led to his conviction. This court should affirm the opinion of the Court of Appeals. At the very least, remand for entry of findings of fact and conclusions of law on the issue of standing is necessary, as the trial court order in this record cannot support the state's argument that Mr. Jordan did not have standing. First, to start with the argument for a straight affirmance of the Court of Appeals decision, because Mr. Jordan has standing based on the facts captured by the body camera footage. The North Star in assessing when a non-overnight guest has a reasonable expectation of privacy is the guest's degree of acceptance in the home. There are a number of factors that courts look at to help illuminate the degree of acceptance that a non-overnight guest has in the home. Is that guest present with the permission of the host? Does that guest exercise a measure of control over the home? What is the relationship between the homeowner or the leaseholder and the guest at the home? This makes sense when an individual is not just present with permission, but has control over the home. Because they are a trusted family member, this person likely has an expectation of privacy in the home that we as a society are going to accept as valid. And based on the body camera footage here, Mr. Jordan checks all of these boxes. And this is where the state's pizza delivery man um, comparison really doesn't withstand even glancing uh, scrutiny. Mr. Jordan is present with permission in Mr. Deese's home. 
I've never had a pizza delivery man come inside of my home. Perhaps other people have different relationships with pizza delivery guys. But more than this, he was present in the home late at night. And unlike a pizza delivery man, he was plainly trusted to bring sensitive materials into the home. But he was there with far more than just permission. He exercised control over the home across the evening in question, something a pizza delivery man would not ever be able to do in normal circumstances. Uh, Mr. Jordan and Mr. Thompson were the only ones home. When Ms. Robertson arrived, uh, they let her in. We know that because Ms. Robertson told that to law enforcement. Law enforcement says that on the body camera. And Mr. Deese says, you know, I wasn't here when you showed up at some point. I was at the gas station. That's plainly conveyed on the body camera footage as well. And then to Justice Riggs's question, Mr. Jordan opened the door for Mr. Thompson to let him in out of the rain. We know that because Officer Tran Thompson recorded that in his contemporaneous report. It's not explicitly shown in the body camera footage, but we see the door being opened at 32 on Officer Brito's body-worn camera, which is 1099 in the record. And then by 36, four seconds later, Williams is walking up. And then by the time Brito gets in the doorway, uh, which is at 41, nine seconds later, there are two people in the doorway talking to Williams. And it's Mr. Jordan and it's Mr. Thompson. So it's very plain from the contemporaneous report from Officer Tran Thompson, as well as the body camera, that Mr. Jordan opened the door for Mr. Thompson. So he's exercising control. He's the gatekeeper of the home controlling who enters the home across the evening in question, surely a pizza delivery man is not going to have that level of dominion over a home. And this broad permission and control over the home relates directly to the fact that this was his uncle's home. To Justice Allen's question, this evidence was introduced into the record and was in front of the trial court as both body cameras that contain this evidence were introduced into evidence. And Mr. Jordan says this at 9.55 and at 11.44 in Mr. Officer Brito's uh, body camera. Um, and this is not just an uncle that he does not know. Mr. Jordan gets into a rolling conversation with law enforcement on the evening in question where he evinces that he is clearly intimately familiar with this building, the home that's inside of it, and the businesses that are in the other parts of the building. This is not an uncle whose house he's visited on one occasion. This is somebody who he plainly understands the layout. He talks about their three different businesses in the home, and there's a nail salon over there, and there's a massage parlor over there, and he's having this conversation with law enforcement. We are all apt to do what Mr. Jordan did and what he's shown doing on the body camera footage when we're at home, to stay late, to bring over sensitive materials, to have a drink, to control the front door, not just control the front door, let people come in the front door when we're staying with or we're visiting family. And Mr. Jordan acted like he was home in the most pertinent way here. 
Law enforcement testified they obtained a warrant to search the home and the safe because he was adamant that they needed one. Uh, the state's argument that there was some sort of disclaimer that occurred here, again, doesn't withstand very much scrutiny, as Mr. Jordan has clearly heard on the body camera saying, you ain't got permission to go through the safe like that. But you don't have to take Mr. Jordan's word for it. Law enforcement testifies the reason we went and got a warrant is because Mr. Jordan repeatedly told us that we could not go into the safe and he would not give us consent to search the safe. Cup that statement that you need to obtain a search warrant coupled with securing materials in a safe is a powerful means of exhibiting a reasonable expectation of privacy. None of these facts. I, I don't want to stop you as you're telling us the facts, but I do want to ask you your response to the argument that the Court of Appeals opinion here can't be affirmed because the Court of Appeals applied the wrongs, put the burden on the wrong party. Um, and while at the end of paragraph 21 in the Court of Appeals opinion, it says the defendant has the burden of showing such an expectation of privacy. But then when you read the following paragraphs, it does seem from the language used that the question the court is asking is whether or not the evidence su um, supports a finding that he lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy, which does seem to be putting the burden on the state to p p t rather than on the defendant. Your Honor, I, I respectfully would disagree. Uh, as you noted at the outset, they communicate very clearly in the Court of Appeals opinion that they understand that the burden is supposed to be on the defendant in regards to um, uh, establishing standing to be able to contest this search. And then they marshal much of the same evidence that I am talking about right now, about presence with permission, late at night, control over who is able to enter. You wouldn't be marshalling evidence in that fashion, it seems to me, if it was the state's burden. But, Your, Your Honor, to the extent that I'm, I'm not able to persuade you on that point, that seems to be an argument for remand to the trial court to weigh in in the first instance uh, and make findings of fact and conclusions of law in regards to the issue of standing. But I think the Court of Appeals got it precisely right, articulating the correct standard and then applying the correct standard. And it, Bears mentioning also, regardless of what the Court of Appeals did here, there are no facts, none of these facts that I have talked about pertaining to permission, pertaining to control, pertaining to the familial relationship between Mr. Deese and Mr. Jordan, or the actions that flow from them is in conflict. And they alone establish standing and require affirming the holding of the Court of Appeals opinion. But at the very least, as I alluded to Justice Earls in response to your question, remand for trial court consideration of standing is, is necessary. Again, it bears mentioning that this was an oral, not a written order. And this oral order did not focus on standing at all. It was focused on the hot pursuit doctrine holding that the hot pursuit doctrine justified the warrantless entry and search at issue. The warrantless entry and search was not justified by the hot pursuit doctrine as the Court of Appeals um, uh, got, uh, as the Court of Appeals held in their opinion and as the state tacitly acknowledged by abandoning 
that argument in their briefing on appeal. And without an effort to stand up the underlying search, all, all that remains to be resolved is standing. I'll return to that in a moment because I, I seem to perceive the state trying to resurrect some of the substantive non-standing arguments, but I'll save that for the end. But just based on their briefing, all that's left is standing. And again, Mr. Jordan believes there's sufficient clear, unquestionable facts that aren't in conflict that establish uh, standing. And nothing in the oral order that is supported by the record runs to the contrary. Um, I want to highlight a, a few things and correct a few things that the state said and take issue with a few things that the state said in regards to um, what happened at the trial court. They say that, uh, you know, there was not a motion to suppress that, that raised these issues. That, that's not so. I encourage the court to look at the motion to suppress that was filed by Mr. Jordan's counsel, which focused on his presence with permission and focused on the fact that he exercised control over the House. And this was something that was amplified over three pages of the argument from trial counsel uh, in regards to uh, the motion to suppress. The court, the, the state also seems to suggest that based on one sentence, one passage in the trial court order, that there are sufficient findings of fact and conclusions of law for this court to um, reverse the Court of Appeals and affirm the trial court finding that the motion to uh, suppress should be denied. And th the passage that they're referring to, I want to read into the record to make sure I, we get it all in there, was there was no time early on, but no time, did defendant indicate that he had any expectation of privacy and interest in the property, didn't want the officers to go, needed to get a warrant. That's what I understand their argument to be that there are findings of fact and conclusions of law in the trial court order that support um, uh, a conclusion that Mr. Jordan did not have standing uh, in this circumstance. There are a number of problems with uh, relying on that passage. First, as I, made it, I, I intimated previously, it's unclear what weight, if any, that passage is bearing in the trial court's oral order. The trial court's oral order is focused on hot pursuit. This is the only standing, the word standing is never used in this oral order. It, this passage is actually from a portion of the order that gestures at consent. Um, so it's not even clear that we're talking about standing in that passage. Second, and again, I'm not trying to gratuitously pick on the trial court, I would hate to read a transcript of any argument that I have ever made because it's all run-on sentences and fragments. But this is just not particularly clear. Right at the outset, the trial court says there was no time and then says early on, but no time. So even the temporal window that we're dealing with is unclear. Are we focused on the idea that Mr. Jordan never evinced a, re a reasonable expectation of privacy or just in that original interaction at the doorway. It seems to be pointing in two uh, separate directions. Um, the other thing, two more things that bear mentioning about this uh, passage. First, to the extent that there are findings of fact here, they, they appear to be that Mr. Jordan didn't express that he didn't want officers to go someplace or that they needed to get a warrant at some point. 
And both of those are belied by the record um, evidence. He told officers explicitly that he didn't want them to go into the safe. You ain't got permission to go through the safe like that. And he did object to the search that the officers wanted to make without a warrant, so vociferously, in fact, that law enforcement testified that's why they obtained a warrant. So there are no factual findings in this passage that are actually supported by the record evidence. Finally, the final problem with relying here on this one passage to stand up this trial court order is that it evinces a misapprehension of standing law and Fourth Amendment law because it seems to be saying that the only way that you're able to evince a Fourth Amendment interest is by verbalizing that. And first he did verbalize that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the home and in the safe. But in addition, it's a totality of the circumstances assessment and obviously actions speak louder than words oftentimes and I wouldn't want if as defense counsel to put too much emphasis on the things that were self-serving in an instance that a defendant had said. But in this case, he acted entirely consistent with having an expectation of privacy, locking the safe, denying uh, consent to search. Um, so this idea that it's a sort of verbalize it or use it, um, uh, constitutional right is just not uh, correct. So again, uh, there's nothing uh, in the evidentiary record that supports Mr. Jordan, uh, the state's argument that Mr. Jordan does not have standing. There's no factual finding that is supported by record evidence that supports that. So we would again argue that affirmance of the Court of Appeals uh, opinion is most appropriate. But if this court believes that resolving standing would require it to delve too far into the evidentiary record, then remand for the trial court for findings of fact and conclusions of law is necessary. Very briefly, your honors, um, the state made reference to plain view and exigency briefly in their oral argument to this court. Um, they did not make reference to plain view or exigency as validating this warrantless entry in search of the home in their PDR to this court or in their new brief to this court. My understanding of the rules is that means that they've abandoned those arguments and that they cannot uh, proceed on them uh, before this court uh, by raising them in the first instance in oral argument. But even if those arguments were before this court, they're unavailing for the reasons that the Court of Appeals found. Um, Brito, for instance, in regards to plain view, testified that he only saw contraband after he entered the house. And um, if you look at the trial court order, to the extent that there is discussion of plain view, the trial court also says, he says, I can't remember which officer it is, but other officers came in to the house and then they saw contraband. So to the extent that there are any factual findings, they are entirely at odds with the idea that the contraband was viewed in plain view, but instead there had been a crossing of the threshold of the home, the chief evil, the Fourth Amendment and our state constitutions, um, warrant protections are designed to protect, and only then after a constitutional violation had occurred do they see 
uh, contraband. So even if the substance of the plain view argument was in front of this court, um, it's an unavailing um, argument. The, the exigency argument, I, again, I don't believe this is in front of the court, but the, the, the trial court uh, focused on that and focused on hot pursuit. You, you need to have uh, a probable cause to arrest and then an exigency and an, uh, an effort to effectuate that arrest. Um, I think there are real questions about whether there was probable cause to arrest Mr. Thompson based on his exceptionally limited interaction with the infinity that was in the parking lot. He sort of walked towards it and then walked away from it. Does that provide probable cause that he um, you know, committed the felony of, of possessing a stolen vehicle? I think real questions in regards to that. There are no questions about whether law enforcement entered the house to effectuate the arrest in this instance. Uh, they walked into the house to look for contraband. They never sought at that moment in time to arrest Mr. Thompson related to the car. Cuffs were paced on him you know, 15 minutes into the body camera footage after the contraband had been viewed. So it's simply, it won't do to argue um, that there was an effort to effectuate an arrest um, based on a fleeing suspect related to this car because that's simply not what the body camera shows. So in closing, the uncontested facts of acceptance in his uncle's home established that Mr. Jordan had standing, meaning this court should affirm the Court of Appeals, but at the very least, remand is necessary for entry of findings of fact and conclusions of law in regards to the issue of standing. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Okay, very uh, briefly, uh, I want to go through some of those uh, points that were raised on the need for uh, findings of fact on standing in the Polar Star and, and Geth's acceptance. I think it's important here to distinguish between these two packages of arguments that I've sort of brought up here. One is the reasonable expectation of privacy, standing, the other is this plain view exigency, which as a footnote to that, the exigency wouldn't be related to the car. The car at that point becomes uh, superfluous. The plain view is drugs from outside the door and the exigency is going and, and uh, stopping their disposal because obviously if you, a bunch of officers show up at your door and somebody opens the door and they could see, you, you know you have drugs in your apartment and then they all leave to go get a warrant. When they come back, those drugs aren't going to be there. Um, but on, on this idea of findings of fact on standing, it, it, it's important when we look at these two packages of arguments, the, re the reasonable expectation of privacy argument, the standing argument, defendant had the burden. I understand that we could take something like, well, he said that uh, Mr. Dietz was his uncle, and that could mean that there's this close familiar relationship. It could mean, and, and he's there late at night. That could mean he's spending the night there or that he often spends the night there, uh, that he let in Thompson. That could mean he routinely lets in people at the door. This is sort of like his home away from home. He stays here all the time. It could mean any of those things. It could also mean he's just here to cut drugs and that he and his uncle have what amounts to a business relationship to sell drugs. I have uncles I haven't seen in 20 years. My kids have uncles they saw this weekend. So it, it, it makes a difference, and defendant put on no evidence. So uh, the, the question here is a burden question, not a question of whether or not there's evidence from which maybe we could put on additional evidence that would also be consistent with finding that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. It's whether or not the, the evidence in the record satisfies the, this burden now. It, it can't be the fact that 
defendant failed to put, didn't opt to put on evidence and perhaps, you know, concede his right to avoid self-incrimination, right? Like that can't be it in and of itself because if the evidence is there, regardless of whose burden it is, the evidence is there to establish that there was in fact a reasonable uh, expectation of privacy, right? I just, I wanna make sure you're not going further than you mean to go. Isn't that, yeah, that, that is, it does seem to present a dilemma, doesn't it? Like this idea that, that, a, that a defendant by establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy is basically admitting to possession, right? Is sort of the idea. The United States Supreme Court in Simmons uh, uh, held that no, 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 the defendant does have the burden to put on this evidence and what is, what is admitted in terms of evidence at a suppression hearing is inadmissible on guilt or innocence. So, so th there's a procedural mechanism in place that, that keeps that back. That's number one. Number two, I think it's important to distinguish the, a, 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 uh, the burden of establishing a reasonable expectation of privacy doesn't require you admit possession, right? I mean, what would it have taken? Just look at the polar star evidence that defense counsel cites here on, as being uh, evidence uh, of a reasonable expectation of privacy, a close familial relationship frequently maybe you know, frequently spends the night there uh, has authority to let people in and out maybe has a key to the place has you know th these are all evidence or, or items of evidence that a defendant who files a motion to suppress could admit without conceding that oh yeah and by the way the cocaine in the safe is mine right but i mean if if the body cam had established that mm -hmm. this is my uncle who i spend every sure. weekend with right this is uh i spend you know two or three nights a week here I have a key to come in and out. Like if the body cam had established out. that, then I just don't want to go so far as to say if the defendant during the motion to suppress hearing, even when the state's evidence makes his case for him and it's just about presenting it in argument, it's, it's not categorically, he doesn't categorically lose because he relies on the evidence that the state put no, in. No, absolutely not. You're, I agree. Uh, correct. The, the, and and it's, most of the cases that you read and these, the, the cases that we cite throughout the briefing, um, Generally, the defendant puts on evidence, but that certainly isn't required. The, the, the state's case could make, you know, the state could present the evidence for him. It, you know, the, the significance of not putting on the evidence is really that idea of, you know, it's his burden. And, and so we need to look, we should look very closely to see whether or not the state's evidence in fact makes the case for him. And, and if it doesn't, uh, I think he's got a problem in terms of satisfying his burden. And at that point, the Fourth Amendment analysis ends. And Your Honor had a question. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so I just want to know the state's position with regard to the affidavit that was submitted in support of the motion to suppress. I've got it right here. I was just turning to that. Yeah, so this idea about the motion to suppress, I mentioned that defendant didn't present any evidence or you know, sort of a footnote to that. The state's case doesn't make the defendant's argument for him. And I said even his, his affidavit for his most suppressed doesn't do it either. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, when we read this affidavit, this is, you know, well, in the motion and the affidavit, we could read them both. The motion has two relevant paragraphs. The officer followed the mail inside the residence where they encountered Mr. Jordan. He was there. Okay. Uh, officer subsequently located contraband. Okay. Nothing about Mr. Jordan is very close to him or something like that. If I read the affidavit in support of the motion to suppress, Thompson knocked on the door of the residence. Jordan opened the door. Okay, I think that's from, this probably, I, I don't think the attorney here actually knows that. I would think that would be from the, the police officer report, but either way, that's fine. Attorney opened, uh, uh, Mr. Jordan opened the door. Officers followed him inside the home and attempted to detain him uh, in reference to the stolen uh, motor vehicle investigation. I'm not sure that's true. It may have been in, uh, regarding the drug paraphernalia. Uh, officers observed items they considered to be drug paraphernalia inside the home. They observed it inside the home as well. Uh, officer subsequently searched the occupants of the home, conducted a protective sweep, yada, 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 and, he, and Mr. Jordan was subsequently arrested. 
Again, nothing provides any of that sort of polar star evidence that defendant talked about with respect to the defendant's relationship with the owner of the home or the property itself. It seems that everything in this record would be consistent with the idea of the defendant effectively having a business relationship with the occupant of this property. There's really nothing that contradicts that, which again is not to say that the trial court couldn't have found differently or the defendant could have presented evidence that showed something different. But we are in a procedural posture where the defendant had the burden. And, and the trial court found that he, he never, uh, there was no, uh, what was the phrasing? That at no time did defendant indicate he had any expectation of privacy or interest in the property. Uh, I think that's supportable based on competent evidence, and I think that does it. That's sort of the end. Um, I do want to talk about this idea about there being no evidence uh, of, uh, purportedly being no evidence that police officers saw um, the drugs from the doorway, which again would have been plain view, that clearly would have been a lawful plain view, that would have created an exigency to, to, to intervene in the house. Uh, Directive Scotty Carson, Officer Scotty Carson was one of the officers there. We, we do have his body camera footage. Question, when you got there, you said the door to the building was open. Did you see anything in plain view right when you got to the door? Yeah. So the left of the countertop was kind of like a table, a makeshift countertop or table. And did you see any items of interest in your investigation on that table left of the door? Yeah. I saw a razor blade with white powdery residue on the countertop and some baggies. Then, two questions later, did you eventually enter the building as well? I did. Why did you do that? I walked in there because I could see, because I could see the individuals, uh, there were law enforcement, and then he ends, he says, and in fact, that there was what I would appear to me to be narcotics and narcotics paraphernalia. And there's similar testimony from other officers, but that, that would be an example. Um, let's see, down to my last minute. Um, trial court order was not based on a reasonable expectation of privacy. I, I disagree. I think he, uh, for the quote I just read, I think the, the trial court did find that the defendant lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy, which actually gets to that last idea. When there is no material conflict in the evidence, the trial court's findings may be inferred from its conclusions. So I think when the trial court concludes something like there is no reasonable expectation, defendant never evidenced any kind of reasonable expectation, or any expectation, rather, of privacy, we can infer that it found the relevant facts to support that. Um, I do agree with the defendant that I think part of the challenge here is we do have an oral order that was contemplated to be a, um, a written order, and it just sort of never happened, so we're kind of maybe, maybe a, a little, uh, things are a little disorganized up here at the moment. Um, absent any further questions, I will take my leave. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you both.